0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. We sing of God's mercy and now is prepared to open his word. A prayer that he would in his mercy visit us through the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Even now, living God, let my teaching fall like rain. Let your word settle like the dew On the grass like showers on the tender plants for I will proclaim the name of the Lord and I will ascribe greatness to our God to God our rock whose work is perfect for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without iniquity good and upright is our God let the teaching of your word fall like rain that your tender plants may grow thereby for Jesus sake Amen. This morning, I'd ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 33. And Isaiah chapter 33, as you turn there, it begins with uh, the ESV, which I'm reading from. The first word is two letters, A-H, ah, or maybe your translation is O, or another translation of this Hebrew word is woe. And chapters 28 through 35 of Isaiah have this pattern of six woes or as the ESV translates it here, ah. And these are six oracles of judgment. And here in chapter 33, we're at the last, the sixth of those oracles. And so this is God's fire falling on Assyria, the great enemy of his people. And so the word of God reads, ah, you destroyer. Who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, people flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceived chaff. You'll give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you and the people's will be as if burned to lime like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressors, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation. An immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor a majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Their cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. They pray and spoil in abundance to be divided. Even the lame will take the prey and no inhabitant will say I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. I hope you hear in this oracle against Assyria and this promise of salvation to God's people that though it is an ancient prophecy against Assyria it's something to which this morning in July we can all relate did you hear the word now in verse 10 now I will arise says the Lord even during our singing time there was a a verse on the screen about waiting on the Lord and a constant theme in Isaiah theme from my preaching in the last couple of months has been waiting on the Lord You ever relate, do you relate to this? You try to wait on the Lord. And what you really, really, really want is to hear God speak the words of verse 10. Okay, you waited for me, daughter. You waited for me, son. Now I will arise. That's that's what we long for. And God knows that. And there's a promise for those in Jesus Christ that we will hear that. We'll hear that divine now. I wonder if you can also relate to verses 18 and 19. After you see the king in his beauty, it says in verse 18 in the Hebrew, your heart will muse on the terror. It's a word for uh, daydreaming. It's like this. Have you ever experienced this? You, you go through a very tough time where you're terrified almost traumatized, something terrible happens or might happen. But then it's over. And a few months later, you look back on it because God has brought good out of it. And a few months later or a few years later, you look back on it and you think, what was I so afraid of? God was with me all the time. That's the feeling there in verses 18 and 19. You look back on what made you tremble and you think, I- I- I'm never going to I'm never going to tremble like that again because God is with me and in God I'm secure. We all want that feeling, even if we don't have it yet. So in typical prophetic fashion, there's a near horizon where this is about Assyria. There's a far horizon where this is about the return of Jesus Christ and the ingathering of his people. And there's a constant horizon where this relates to us in all the varying situations in our lives. That's the way prophecy works. I've seen, perhaps you've seen it, this meme is everywhere. There's a meme about prophecy going around right now. I think I saw it on Elon Musk's Twitter account, I think. Uh, And here in the month of July, what is today? July 10th is that prophecy of 7-Eleven. Growing up in Southern California, we always went to 7-Eleven because you could get two chili dogs and a 44-ounce Dr. Pepper for five bucks and, of course, fill up with gas. And the prophecy is that it's that iconic orange and green 7-Eleven sign it's taken in Los Angeles, and then right under the sign is the digital readout of the price of gas, $7.11. It's probably what it will be tomorrow. To understand this prophecy of God's judgment, that the fire will fall and the enemies, the wicked, will be consumed. And at the same time, we will behold the king in his beauty. Isaiah is more bold than any of us are. We're like, okay, we'll do a thing about judgment. Okay, we'll do a thing about the beauty of the Lord. Isaiah puts them together, and he never meant for us to separate them one from the other. I love this. So I've given you maybe a three-point outline to understand God's fire and God's beauty. And so as we work through this text briefly this morning, I'll just give you, there are about maybe four verses from, from Isaiah 33 that I've been meditating on for the last couple of weeks, and I would commend to you for your meditation. The first one is right there in verse two. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. In the previous chapters, and we'll see it in the narrative of the next chapter with Sennacherib and, and, uh, and Assyria invading, the problem that God's people faced, which is the problem that we face, is God's people were like, We know you told us to wait for you, but it would be easier to grab Egypt to help us against Assyria. It would always be easier to rely on the arm of flesh. It always seems easier to walk by sight and not by faith. So God's people in the previous chapters have been saying, we want to take care of ourselves. We're not sure that we can wait for you. And yet, finally, hear God's people say, Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. You are the arm of our salvation. Don't miss this, church. When When your pastor is telling you, wait on the Lord, it is with this assurance, church you will never regret waiting on the Lord. You will regret your refusal to wait on the Lord but you will never regret waiting on the Lord. There's this joy of God's people that when they wait for the Lord they have a stronger arm than they ever could have imagined and they have salvation in every time of trouble. Here in the context they had looked to Egypt We'll see in the next couple chapters uh, uh, with the parallel account in Kings and Chronicles that the, their king actually tried to bribe the king of Assyria with cash and money. But finally they're like, we tried to ally with Egypt and that didn't work. We tried to bribe Assyria and that didn't work. And finally, finally, finally they get to the place where they say this. Have you gotten to the place where you say this? Finally they get to the place where they say, everything I've tried isn't working. Maybe the problem is I'm trying, not waiting on the Lord. You'll never regret waiting on the Lord. This is what God, so to speak, is waiting for. In our call to worship this morning, the text actually said he's waiting on his tiptoes to be merciful to you. Church, wait on the Lord. I told you there's about four verses that I have been meditating on, and here right out of the gate, I will give you the, the first and the, actually the second and the third because the second and the third are right there in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Don't miss that marvelous word in verse 6, stability. Stability. Oh, for church members. Oh, for an elder board, a deacon board that has stability, no matter what. Stability. He will be the stability of your times. Don't miss that stability. If you are going to have stability then your stability must come from one who is beyond the shakings of this world. If you're going to have stability in your time, then your stability must come from someone who is outside of time. If you anchor your stability to anyone or anything that is inside of time, your stability is as unstable as all of the vicissitudes of the clock ticking down. But if your stability is anchored in the God who is beyond time and who is, so to speak, outside of the world because he created it, 1 John 2, this world is passing away. You ping your stability on anything that's passing away, your stability is unstable. Oh, but if you anchor in God, he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Isn't this interesting? Where does stability come from? Okay, it's kind of like verse 6 lists all the blessings. Stability of your time, salvation, wisdom, knowledge. And the crowning blessing is the fear of the Lord. Verse 6 is a treasure chest of blessings. Salvation is a blessing and stability is a blessing. And the crown jewel in the treasure chest is the fear of the Lord. Again, Isaiah is far more bold than we are. I don't think we would pick that. We would pick salvation or love or something like that. Isaiah picks the fear of the Lord as the crowning gift. How can that be? Stability comes from the fear of the Lord. Because only when we trust in God are we safe. The fear of the Lord is that fire which consumes all other fears and we are relatively unstable with a dozen new things to be afraid of every day if we're not captured by the fear of the Lord. Oh, but show me a woman who is to be praised for she fears the Lord. Show me a man who's stable because he fears the Lord, and he will make it through the tumultuous, even terrifying times because the fear of the Lord is that anchor. Proverbs 14, verse 26 The fear of the Lord is a strong tower. Proverbs 28, verse 14, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but the one who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, check the context here. The fire is going to fall on Assyria, and Assyria can be terrified by God's judgment. So interpret the fear of the Lord, which is a question we often have, what's the fear of the Lord? Interpret it in context here. The fire of God's judgment falls on Assyria, so the wicked can be terrified of the wrath of God. But if the wicked can experience that, the fear of the Lord, which is the treasure that belongs to God's people, must be something broader or bigger than just being terrified of God. The fear of the Lord is that our stability, our salvation, our wisdom, our knowledge are all tied in up in God. It's not merely a terror of His fury. It's a faith in who He is. He is the God who judges, and He is the God who saves. And the fear of the Lord is the embrace of the reality of who God is. And so the fear of the Lord is not a wincing uh, the old word for it is servile fear, like a trembling fear. The old word for it is the, the fear of the Lord is a filial fear. That's just the old-fashioned word for the, that of a son or a daughter who has a father who they, they, they know their father has been so good to them that they long to please their father. And they're afraid of displeasing their father. Not because he's arbitrary and he's going to backhand them, but because he's so good. And this, it's this filial fear. It's this faith-filled fear that we have. Charles Wesley understood it. Sometimes I think, I don't know, sometimes I think we could, sometimes I think we could get better theological definitions sometimes from our hymns than from our dictionary of theology. Not that I have anything against theology, but sometimes it's just so dry. Charles Wesley got it when he has, this, uh, he has this hymn called I Want a Principle Within. I want a principle within of watchful godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near Help me the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. He wants that principle of the fear of the Lord to make him so loyal to God, so desirous of never displeasing God that out of filial love for God, he stays on the straight and narrow, not because he's he's mistreated and, and he's gonna get whacked, but just because he loves his father so much. And in the second verse of that hymn, I Want a Principle Within, uh, he uses the, the contrast between servile fear and filial or daughterly or, or the fear of sonship. And he says, From thee that I no more may stray, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me the filial awe, I pray, the tender conscience give. This is, this is the kind of woman, the kind of man who sees the fear of the Lord as a treasure, as a blessing. Because you know who God is, and you know who you'd be without God. And so you fear Him. God's fire consumes all evil. So verses 7 through 16 show us that we want to walk with Him. We see the divine now in verse 10 Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. I've been telling you to wait on the Lord. Here the Lord moves with his divine now and it's, it's worth waiting for him. Then verses 11 and 12 say uh, you've conceived chaff so you're going to give birth to stubble. This is, the, this is the divine law of reaping what you have sown. When the Lord rises in judgment, when the Lord rises up to judge, two things happen simultaneously. First, Everyone reaps what they have sown. The divine consequence. The outcome that you yourself chose is the outcome that you receive. This is the law of Galatians 6, right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. When God rises to judgment, you receive the consequences of what you yourself have sown in your life. But the second thing that happens is the divine judgment. It's not merely the natural or even supernatural consequences of what you have chosen, but there's an active judgment of God. Verse 12 speaks of it as being burned, being cut down and burned in the fire. And so looking at that judgment, we come to this haunting question of verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling as sees the godless, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? This is the question, is it not? When we see God in his fiery holiness, what can we do? Well, this is as good a place as any to turn back to the... the it's the most famous text in Isaiah because it, arguably it's the most important text in Isaiah, the calling of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter six, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings and with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet and two he flew and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke and I said, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips." and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for and I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for me and I said here I am send me this theme from Isaiah 6 is picked up again in Isaiah 33. That's not the first or the last time that this theme is picked up where we ask that question in the end of verse 14 in our text, who can dwell? Who, who can stand against the fire of the Lord? And when Isaiah saw God's fiery holiness, he said, woe is me, I can't do it. This, this is and ever will be what is required to be A woman of God or to be a man of God, what it requires is first a, 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 a high vision of God's holiness, His justice, His wrath. And second, a deep awareness of your own sinfulness. And then third, a profound experience of God's burning redeeming grace Isaiah had this high view and vision of God's holiness and he had this deep awareness of his own sinfulness and then with the seraphim with the burning coal he had this profound experience of God's atoning mercy and grace it's not laid out the exact same way but it is in a very similar theme that we find it in verses 14 and 15 In 16 of Isaiah 33, that haunting question in verse 14 of the the, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire, who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings, and it says he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who who, who doesn't take a bribe, who turns away from bloodshed and evil, and then it says in verse 16, he will dwell on heights and he will have a place of defense and a fortress in the rock this is it. These are the words of our text about God's holiness. We see first there in verse 14, a serious awareness of our sin. And following a serious awareness of our sin comes in verse 15, a strong desire for God's holiness. A serious awareness of my sin leads me to a strong desire to be rid of my sin and to be filled with God's holiness. Verse 14, a serious awareness of our sin. Verse 15, a strong desire for holiness. Verse 16, a security in God's salvation. A security in God's salvation. It'll take him to the last verse of the chapter to use the word forgiveness. Verse 24. No inhabitant will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. But that's what he's talking about, the forgiveness of salvation. Because to, 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 again, be clear about the gospel and as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, what I want more than anything of first importance, of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, is to be clear about the gospel. Don't take, I, don't take verses 14 and 15 and 16 of like verse 15, he walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Don't take that to mean that if you want to get saved, you have to change all your behavior and walk righteously and then maybe God will save you. The atoning work of the altar comes first. Don't confuse fruit with root. It's only the grace of God in the burning coal from the altar, which is the cross of Jesus Christ that saves us. So here's the question for you on this July Sunday. I would be a failure as a gospel minister if I didn't ask this question. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And can I just push in a little bit more? If you say yes, if you say yes, then my question from verse 15 about walking uprightly would be, uh... Is the faith that you say you have in Jesus? Is it demonstrated in the way that you walk? Is it demonstrated in the way that you talk? He goes right to speech here. Isaiah went right to his lips, and in uh, verse verse 14, in verse sixteen, he goes right to his speech. Is it demonstrated in the way you speak? In the way that you walk? And finally, in verses 17 to 24, God's fire forgives and secures his people so we trust in him. And verse 17 is the fourth verse that I've been meditating on these last couple of weeks, and I would commend it to you. Your eyes will behold. There's the prophecy, the promise. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, and they'll see a land that stretches afar. We come back to worship. Worshiping the triune holy God is the theme of the book of Isaiah because it is the theme of this whole book. The ultimate priority is always to see the king in his beauty. Church, the ultimate priority always is to behold the king in his beauty. And then the rest of the chapter reflects on what that'll mean. Verse 17, the presence of the king in his beauty means the absence of all enemies. It means like verses 18 and 19 say we can look back on the terror as a a bad daydream that didn't really come true. And we can have our feasts in Zion. Verse 20, the Lord is the majesty for us. And then verse 22, the Lord himself is our judge and our lawgiver and our king. The crowning blessing is there in verse 24 that we're forgiven we're forgiven. Church, do you believe that the ultimate priority now and every day is to see the king in his beauty? That's what it's all about. And yet we constantly discount the importance of God and we constantly raise up the value of all sorts of things that aren't God. Why is it that we discount the value of God? And we raise up the value of things that aren't God. It's crazy. Because I'm telling you, oh, I hope you believe this. I hope you agree with me. The most important thing about you is who is your God? Who is your God? What comes to your mind and heart when you think about God is the most important thing about you but we don't, we don't actually think that. I think it was G.K. Chesterton, he says somewhere very cleverly, he says, uh, like, in the Middle Ages, dudes used to burn each other at the stake for their view of God. If another philosopher or another theologian believed something erroneous about God, they would, put him in the, they would put him in the town square and burn him. And Chesterton says, now, in our day and age, we look back at that and we're like, that's crazy, that's wacky, why would you do that? Well, okay, that's crazy and and wacky, but the problem is we can see their error because it's of another age, but we don't see our own error. Because the error in our own age is that actually most of everyone who you bump into actually functionally believes that your philosophy of life and your theology of God doesn't make any difference. Well, that's just as crazy as burning someone at the stake to actually believe that what you believe, your worldview of life and your view of God makes no difference? That's insane, but that's our error, which is the pendulum swing from the Middle Age error, the error of the Middle Ages. Verse 17, what your vision of God is, Isaiah 6, what your vision of God is, is the most important thing about you. Because if, if you understand who God is, then your past can fall into place. There is forgiveness. There is divine providence. But if your vision of God is unclear, what you have done in the past or what others have done to you in the past, can, you, you can't ever get past it because you're just stuck in the moment of of, of right now and who who you're trying to be. And if your vision of God is clear, then your future is secure. But if your vision of God is not clear or is faulty, there's no way you can handle the future because everything's coming at you and where's your stability? Where's your stability? The vision of God is more important than all other visions in life. And that's what I would commend to you from the book of Isaiah and from this text. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. And the promise in verse 19 is that you'll no more see these things and, and no, no more be beholden to them. But rather that vision of God will take care of you And so, church, I'd call you to Isaiah 33, verse 2, and to be a people who wait for the Lord to be your arm every morning. Stop relying on these arms. Just stop. This so frail, rely on the arm of God. And, church, I would call you, verses 5 and 6, to let the living God be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Anchor your stability in your times outside of time. You have to. And church, I would call you to behold the king in his beauty. That Let that vision of God transform everything else. And so would you join me in prayer. We've had, uh, we've already had time to reflect in prayer when uh, the bells played earlier in the service and you just had some time to think and pray. And I would encourage you to, now that you've heard the word, just to complete that by taking some time to quietly pray. Pray about your stability. Pray about waiting on the Lord. A prayer of confession that I've discounted the value of God and I've increased the value of so many other things. God, I'm sorry. Bring me back to the sanity of beholding the King in his beauty. Lord God, hear your people as they pray, hearing forgive, hearing answer, hearing provide help and hope in Jesus Christ and his glorious grace. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.